Chapter 6 Children born to a Christian parent come into the world with a unique and wonderful privilege. They are born into the bundle of their believing family and start their life in Christ. Jesus welcomed infants brought by parents who believed in him. Let the little children come to me, he said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. We read that they are sacred to the Lord for their parents' sake, until old enough to decide for themselves whether to follow or forsake him. But we've seen that when a family or tribe is judged, its members may suffer greatly through no fault of their own. This fact is recognised in the Ten Commandments, where God speaks of laying the condemnation of the fathers on the children up to the third and the fourth generation of those who despise me. This does not mean that the children are blamed or punished for their parents' wrongdoing, as the law itself makes clear. Parents shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their parents. Each one shall be put to death for his own wrongdoing. Later this is emphasised. The son shall not suffer for the guilt of the father, nor shall the father suffer for the guilt of the son. In a family, however, when one of its members behaves wickedly or is publicly disgraced, the consequences will often affect succeeding generations. The innocent children and grandchildren of a convicted fraudster or murderer will not easily clear themselves of the stigma or the memory. And many people have suffered on account of their parents' selfishness, stupidity or disgrace. They may change their name and location in order to escape it. The evil doings of the parents inevitably harm the children. And it can take several generations for the bad example or the damaging consequences to fade. The same is true of nations, churches and other collectivities. The past history of a group largely determines the status and reputation of its members. And the future progress of the company they belong to may influence their course far more strongly than anything they are able to decide for themselves. Yet there's usually room for an individual to step out of a doomed or compromised collectivity. Jericho was a city that must be destroyed, but Rahab, who lived there, put her trust in the God of Israel and was saved. Noah's generation had to be swept away, but he and his family followed God's instructions and survived. The city of Sodom must be overthrown, but Lot and his daughters heeded the angel's warning and escaped. These all stepped out of a doomed collectivity and were safe. 
And whatever the history of our family may be, we can turn to Christ and be born again into a different family. Joining this new company of people, the wrongdoings of our ancestors have no more hold over us. Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We can accept this freedom or refuse it, and the choice is ours. To remain in a corrupt collectivity is always risky, but to step out of it is usually an option. Indeed, the Lord God urges us to do so. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. As quickly as possible, we should escape from unwise entanglements. So we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Go out from their midst and be separate from them. Jesus himself spoke of judgment to come on the towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. So any disciples who lived there would be wise to move away. And Peter urged the crowd that was gathered in Jerusalem, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Many who heard him left the troubled city before it was laid waste a few years later, and so lived in peace elsewhere. It is clear that we have freedom to step out of collective condemnation. It's also possible, although foolish, to step out of collective blessing. A person who deliberately broke the law would be cut off from the nation of Israel and forfeit their share in its inheritance. The sons-in-law of Lot scorned the safety offered to his family and so perished amidst the rubble of Sodom. Judas gave up his privileged place among the twelve apostles and died miserably. Demas, in love with this present world, abandoned Paul's missionary team, and we hear no more of him. There are others we read about who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Holding Christ up to contempt, they now have no part in him. They have stepped away from the kingdom of God. Many people, in contrast, have been able to tie themselves into a blessed collectivity. That, too, is an option. Hobab was born to the people of Midian, but Moses invited him, Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Eternal has promised good to Israel. Caleb was descended from the tribe of Edom, yet he became an honoured leader among God's people. Ruth was born into the nation of Moab, yet entered the covenant and genealogies of Israel. Uriah was a Hittite, yet became a trusted soldier in the army of King David. Anyone, as we have seen, can be bound into the bundle of Jesus Christ, 
through personal faith in him. Perhaps this is what he meant when he said, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We choose which bundle we belong to, and he respects our choice. And this opens up a further possibility. We've observed how wise we may be to opt out of a doomed collectivity for our own sake. Yet our calling may be to remain within it and seek to strengthen or restore it for the sake of others. Or even deliberately to enter a more hazardous collectivity and bring fresh hope among a company whose future looks extremely bleak. We may tie ourselves into a condemned bundle of our own free will. This is a heroic path taken by many missionaries in past and present times. The Apostle Paul suffered many beatings and imprisonments. He was seized and battered by riotous mobs, once stoned and left for dead, three times shipwrecked, in peril crossing rivers, in danger from robbers and thieves, enduring hungry days and sleepless nights, and frequently upset by troubles in the churches. He did not need to suffer all this. He could have lived in comfort. But he deliberately chosen such a life, saying, I rejoice in what I have suffered for you, adding my own physical afflictions to those of Christ, in order to complete what must be done for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul was not concerned to save himself physically from that crooked generation, nor from the persecution facing Christian people. He was following Jesus Christ, who deliberately joined the human race and the nation of Israel and suffered intensely for both. The grain of wheat which falls into the earth and dies is the one that bears a harvest, and all who follow his example will have the same reward. We have thought about the judgments of the Eternal. But in a broken and imperfect world, justice cannot yet be perfect or complete. A person pleasing to God cannot yet receive all their Lord wishes to give them, and a person displeasing to him cannot yet have all that they deserve. Although Queen Jezebel quickly perished after plotting the death of Naboth and stealing his property, the recompense to Naboth and his family must wait until the day when all wrongs are put right and Jezebel herself may still have much more to answer for. Justice will not be settled until all the books are opened and all the accounts assessed. We read that then is the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Every human oppressor, corrupter and parasite will then be brought to justice. 
and a solemn event from the past is cited to show what follows. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what will happen to the ungodly. The tyrants, profiteers and aggressors of this world will all be burnt to ashes. As we read, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The details are very specific. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and everything done on it will be revealed. This will be the last judgment. It will sift, save and sweep clean, securing both destruction and reward for all eternity. It is written, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. We might face our troubles more cheerfully if we gave more thought to the reward. We read, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds go with them. Some will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Come and share your master's joy. Jesus himself for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame. Paul, abandoned at his trial, looked forward to his crown. Elsewhere, we are shown a host of witnesses who, by faith, drew strength to endure present hardships from the thought of future blessing. From the ashes of the old world, a new world will arise. Plants will grow up and animals thrive in a paradise restored to perfect harmony. The survivors will re-establish all that is best of human civilization. There will be plenty for everyone to do, with old technologies to rebuild and new technologies to develop for the greatly changed conditions. It's hard for us to visualise. As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us. And on the new earth, we will each receive our reward and our place of activity in his eternal kingdom. We will speak more of this. From their own experience, the early Christians could cheerfully declare, We know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How did they know it with such certainty? 
They knew it because they had seen it happen. This was the conclusion they came to after many troubles and frustrations and many years of walking with the Lord their God. They did not say that he works some things or most things together for good. Their assurance embraces everything. God works all things together for good. Every single thing has its allotted place in the bigger picture. An incident on its own may seem pointless or even ruinous, but in the context of what went before and what comes after and what is happening elsewhere, it will fit together with everything else in an unfolding pattern. For this reason, we take a long view of life and serve under wide horizons. As one door closes, another opens wide. A frustration here leads to a fresh prospect there. A miserable failure reveals the way to success. The loss of someone leads us to someone else. A testing experience equips us for special responsibility. God works every single thing together for good. He does this not for everyone, but for those who love him. And here again we have a collectivity, the company of God's people called according to his purpose and tied into his bundle. Within this company, some will suffer adversity and mistreatment as Jesus did, and even tragedy and grievous loss. Jeremiah thrown down a well, Ezekiel carried into exile, John the Baptist imprisoned, James executed by Herod, Stephen battered by stones, John confined on Patmos, Jesus himself crucified. None of these saw any good come of it at the time, and none had any personal benefit. But each of them, through suffering, secured something unique and lasting for the benefit of God's people. So Jesus reminds us, I sent you to harvest what others laboured to sow, and you have the benefit of their labour. And we in turn accept toil and hardship so that others may be blessed. We cheerfully bear the burden and the heat of the day, so that the lost may be found, the guilty brought to repentance, the weak made strong, the ignorant led to faith. From the viewpoint of eternity, we will look back on all the troubles and travails, and not regret a single one. The servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, will see what was accomplished by the labour of his soul and be satisfied. And so will we. As it is written, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The all things that work together are never limited by space or time. Jesus told his puzzled disciples, 
What I am doing now, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. The pieces of a jigsaw may seem quite bewildering at first, but when the puzzle is complete, the whole picture will be seen. Then all things will finally be together. That lies in the future. But now, of course, we're still engaged in the battle here below, and the outcome may seem quite uncertain. We've considered what the Lord our God is doing, but now we may well wonder, what is our enemy up to? <laughs> 